0: Good morning, Blackman Baptist Church. Um, We're talking about Esther today. I'm really stoked about it. Um, Kevin was talking about how preparing for Zechariah, it's a challenge because it's kind of obscure, and it's kind of a difficult book. But the good side is a lot of people in the the congregation aren't going to have really any preconceived notions about what you're going to say. But with Esther... Many of us know the story very well. Many of us have a lot of actually interesting thoughts, but I was fascinated just sitting in Sunday school listening to the insight and the, the kind of the depth of understanding that was coming out of the, the group this morning was, was powerful. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to share a message with you, and I'm also feeling like, wow, there's, there's a lot of good thoughts in this room besides the ones I had. Um, But we're going to look into Esther today. It's a remarkable book. It's unique in the Bible. It seems almost like a screenplay. Um, It has all the characters. We tick them off. A beautiful girl. Really a beautiful girl. A powerful warrior king. And his self-serving cronies. It's got a wise and a kind old uncle. And a truly wicked, rich, and very determined villain. That thing's right in my head. It has timing. It has plot twists. It has dramatic revelations. It has risk and courage. It has pride and humiliation. There's murderous intent. There's jealous rage. It has loyalty, conspiracy, rescue, and revenge. What a story in just a few chapters in Esther. It even, I noticed, it strangely shares another element with a Hollywood production. It never mentions God. But it is a completely true story. And that's what makes it so amazing. It's part of the story of Israel. It does have things to say about God, even though he's not called by name and he doesn't have any speaking parts. It also has something to say about and to us. I'm going to start with our focal passage. That's going to be the very, very famous passage. Um, that you'll recognize right off the top, but I'll read it um, and then we'll pray and get started. Hear the word of the Lord from Esther 4, verse 10. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty. Unless the king extends the gold scepter... "'allowing that person to live. "'I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days.'" And Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, "'Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews "'because you are in the king's palace. "'If you keep silent at this time, "'relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, "'but you and your father's family will be destroyed. "'Who knows?' Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that I will go to the king even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this amazing book of Esther and, and all that it teaches us in parallel, in shadow, in, in plot, and in story, in character. Father, teach us to see, to see You in these, in these words. Father, teach us how we should live from what they say. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay. I want to take a few minutes to set the stage, and Carly's going to help me. Uh, then we're going to walk through the story and see what we can learn. And I'm actually going to get myself comfortable so I can see the screen and walk through it with you. Okay, so I said this is a true story. God is a story-making God. But when, he, when we make up stories, our stories are make-believe, right? They're pretend. But when God writes stories, He writes stories using actual reality, right? That's how God writes stories, in reality. We call it history, His story, and, and so he writes these characters. The book starts by setting, the book of Esther starts by setting the scene, and I want to help with that. The king in this book is Ahasuerus, or as the Greeks called him, Xerxes I. At the time of the story, he ruled, as verse 1 says, 127 provinces from India to Kush. Kush is an old name for Ethiopia. So if you look at the map, India's down here all the way to Ethiopia down here. That's a huge, huge empire at the time. That was was the global empire in those days. This man was a powerful, powerful king. If we, uh, we look at all the territory that he covered here, as the story begins, he kind of inherited a lot of this territory from his father. But he had just come back from a campaign up near Greece where he took that last little section up there in Thrace. Um, and it's interesting, for those of you who know the Greek uh, battle history, which I'm um, very interested in, but not super knowledgeable about. But if you know about the Battle of Thermopylae, this was the guy. He was just back, probably only a short time from that campaign. Um, they won the battle at Thermopylae. They beat those 300 Spartans in the pass, And but then they lost the war because there was a naval battle where the Greeks defeated them, surprisingly. And so they they did get some territory out of it, but not what they hoped. They couldn't take Greece, and they had to go back home. Um, So he goes back home, and Xerxes had a reputation. Xerxes liked two things a lot, wine and women. So Xerxes comes back home and uh, comes back to the comforts of his palace, his wine, and his harem. And the, the verse here in verse 2 says, In those days King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. Now if you uh, flip the slide there, Carly. This is from Google Maps as of yesterday. So, this is so interesting to me. This is the actual foundation of the palace there at Susa. Um, this is a castle that the French built when they were excavating the, pal- the palace. They built it from rubble from the palace. Um, this over here, if you see, it says the tomb of Daniel. This place is loaded with history. We don't believe that Daniel actually lived here. Uh, we believe that he lived in another capital a little bit farther away, um, Babylon and possibly a place called Ectabana. But... When he died, the tradition holds that he was actually buried here, that his body was brought here and entombed here. Um, and then the tradition says that when Islam took over in that part of the world, that the local, the local uh, mullah or imam or whatever he was, was frustrated by the pilgrims that were coming. Because the pilgrims would come to venerate the body of Daniel... And he decided, this, this looks too much like idol worship. we got to stop this. So the legend is that he took the body and buried it in the river where no one could get to it anymore. But the tomb is still there, and it's still honored. It's fascinating. In Iran, this is in Iran, um, a very, very Muslim country, but they still honor Daniel. Fascinating. So if we move to slide four real quick, Carly. This is an artist's rendering of what they think the palace that Susa looked like. So this is what, which would be the place that Xerxes lived, that Esther m- moved into when she became um, queen. Um, f- slide five, real quick. This is fascinating to me. So if you go back real quick, Carly, to the last one, you see you see these little details up here, the tops of the columns? that looks kind of like a bull, bowl, a couple bulls on top of the column. That's what we're going to see in the next picture. Look how big that is, and that's actually one of them. It's not a replica. That was excavated from the site, and now you can see it if you make it to Paris and visit the Louvre Museum. It's actually there. Um, a few years ago, we were fortunate enough to get to go, and I had no idea that this thing even existed. I I didn't know. So we were just walking around the antiquities section of the Louvre and we stumbled across this thing. I was like, that's interesting. Let's read the plaque. What? Darius? Yeah, for real. Amazing. Amazing. Um, If you look closely, I don't know if you can tell from there, but the way it's constructed, you can see those giant beams. Uh, The way they supported the roof was the huge timbers. And they've got a cut so that it can support a cross, a cross beam. And it's amazing to think, we're standing feet away from that thing. That is a column that held up the roof that kept the rain off Esther's head. Wow. Slide six real quick. Um, so this is a, a frieze that they took from the palace. Um, and it's also in the Louvre. If you just think about it, that would have been a thing that Esther probably saw probably probably frequently depending on where in the palace it was she may have seen it all the time um, okay go ahead and quit bill carly this is interesting this is this is the tomb of Esther and Mordecai this is not in Susa it's it's up the road in a place called Ectabana. the way the persian kings operated they had multiple cities that they that they operated their government from so Ecbatana was one. Persepolis was the capital. Susa was one of their government cities. These tombs are in Ectobana. Um And they're still there. They're still venerated. Um, and they're, these, these tombs are ancient. Now, we can't 100% know that for sure these are Esther and Mordecai. Like Kevin was saying the other day about Jerusalem. These ancient sites in the Middle East can be difficult to, to absolutely prove. But it is a very, very old tradition and um, Iran isn't the typical place where you're going to find a lot of veneration for, for Hebrew heroes, right? So it's um, it's it's a uh, it's a pretty potent symbol there. Um, last slide, Carly here. This is a site down in the southeast of Iran, southwest of Iran. It's in the desert. These are the tombs of those kings. So the one on the far right is the tomb of Ahasuerus or Xerxes I. That would have been Esther's husband in the far right. These others were either his father or his son and grandson. Um, so what, why am I talking about all these things? I mean, I am kind of a history nerd. Okay, and so this was an opportunity to burden you with that uh, particular problem that I have, but but I really do want to encourage you that this this is also an apologetic argument. Um, these pictures drive home a fact: when we reach, when we read scripture, we read history. Okay, that should give us confidence. They're not cleverly devised myths, as Peter said. Um, God works in real time in real places, with real people. Um, so while, the, while the, the canon of Scripture is complete, though, his story is not complete. And we're still here. So that's why I wanted to show you those pictures. If you flip to the next one, Carly, and then wait for a few minutes, we've we'll, we got a few more. Um, okay, so let's start from the top. And you have outlines in your study guide if you want to kind of follow along. We want to start with faithfulness, in exile, uh, we've introduced King Xerxes, King Ahazarus He ruled most of the known world at the time, and he had ultimate authority. Life and death was literally in his hands. He could he could declare you dead, and you would be dead, or he could give you uh, he could give you leniency, and you would live. Vashti was the name of his queen. Um, this isn't in Scripture, but some Jewish, ancient Jewish writings say that she was actually a great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Fascinating. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, was the Babylonian king that when, uh, when the Persians defeated and took Babylon, they believed that she came along with the package there. Um, so exile in Susa, this is interesting. Why are they in Susa? Why are the Jews in Susa? Persia didn't conquer Jerusalem. Oh, at least not until another 1,500 years later. What, so why is this? Well, because, because Assyria had conquered northern, the northern kingdom, because Babylon had taken Jerusalem, and they took all these exiles out into Babylon and into these, into these other cities. When Persia took over Babylon, the Jews came along for the ride. And so now it was this giant empire, and people migrated. And remember, we know from Daniel that, that the, the Jews took prominent positions in government too. So, so when, when the Persians took over, the Scriptures tell us that Darius took on some of those Jewish, um, Jewish servants and used them as, as governors and, and, rule, and rulers in the government. Um, Mordecai and Esther, let's talk about them for a minute. Uh, scripture introduces Mordecai as one of these exiles. He's living in Susa. He's having taken in his orphan niece. He's raising her as a daughter. Her name is Hadassah, which is Esther in Persian. Esther 2.7 tells us she had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. Um, so that helps to visualize. Haman was a vizier. He was a high-ranking official for the king. This is interesting, and, and uh, I'm kind of glad we didn't dig too much into it this morning. He has a backstory. Talk about a villain with a backstory. story. Um, He was descended from the Amalekites. And if you don't remember the Amalekites, all the way back in Exodus, when the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, and they're trying to get through the desert, and what happens? These Amalekites come up and try to fight them. Well, they don't try. They do. They fight them. And this is the battle that you remember. It's, It's so famous. It's a famous picture. Because they're fighting. Moses sent Joshua to go fight the battle. And Moses stood up on the hill. And when he lifted his hands... Joshua would win. And if he lowered his hands, then the Amalekites would start to to surge back. And so remember that he had the helpers that lifted up and held up Moses' hand until the battle was over. Hands. Those were the Amalekites. Those were the bad guys in that fight. And after the victory was over... It says, Exodus 17 and 14 tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Pretty hardcore. We've been looking at, at minor prophets and we know that God can be hardcore. This is hardcore. He's got no patience for Amalek. He's made a vow to destroy them. So, remember, fast forward then from Exodus, but before where we are now, God had told Saul, Saul's the first king, and one of the very first tasks he gives the first king is, go take care of the Amalekites. Wipe them out. That's your your order. And he said, completely destroy everything. Saul didn't do it. Saul wiped almost everybody out, but he left some of the stuff, and he didn't quite get everybody, including the king. He left the king alive. And we remember that story because Samuel then chopped the king to pieces. Um... But somehow there was a survivor, And Agag or Haman, the Agagite survived that somehow his lineage survived. So now, now we're uh, almost five, six hundred years later, and and now Haman is a governor in the government of of Persia. Um, so that's that's the backstory for the bad guy. Esther and Mordecai are part of this Jewish exile community. And it's been long enough in exile, almost a hundred years at this point, that neither of them are really old enough to have known Jerusalem. Exile is normal to them. For Esther and Mordecai, exile is normal. They, they probably had a longing for their own land and, and the old ways, but they didn't know it from memory. They were born in exile. The sins of Israel that led to God giving them over, or not Mordecai and Esther's sins. Isn't that interesting? But here they are. They're in exile anyway. How should we think about this? I want to make just a couple quick points. God is faithful to His people in exile. So Esther and Mordecai are in exile, but God's faithful to His people even in exile. He put them there, but He's faithful. And in exile, God expects His people to be faithful to Him in exile. And like we said in Sunday school this morning, we can see from this passage, Mordecai trusts. Do you realize in some ways we're in exile? We humans have been separated from the garden, from perfect intimacy with God, but he's faithful. He's faithful even in this exile. And he's promised to bring us back and restore all things. So we've been waiting for some time in human terms, quite some time. Are you willing to patiently wait in faith? Still long, but patiently wait. We're in exile. That's a big picture thing. But sometimes we can feel like we're in exile personally in in smaller ways. Do you feel like you are in exile in some ways? Have things gone wrong because of bad choices that you've made? What about bad choices somebody else made? It's possible. Because our own choices and other people's choices can put us in we're feeling like we're in exile. But that's not the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. God's still faithful to, our, to us in exile. And He expects us to be faithful in exile. In this story, Mordecai and Esther are in exile. But God's getting ready to use them. Are you looking for how He He's going to get, use you? We know we can see from this, the second part, entitled it, Bloom Where You're Planted, because Esther's going to become queen. She can't control her circumstance. She's in exile. She can't control this this all-powerful king, this man. She can't control what he's going to be like. Um, He's going to demand that she show up and be part of his harem. And what happens from there, she can't control. But before this, at the end of a week-long banquet, and we know the story, so I'm going to try and hit it quickly. But at the end of a week-long banquet, uh, the king is with, his, is with his people and they've been drinking and drinking and drinking. He calls for his wife, Queen Vashti, to put on her crown and come to him just so he could show off how beautiful she was. Put on your crown and come. I want, I want to show the guys. But she refused. She said, no, I think I'm going to stay with the ladies. We're having a banquet. I'm not coming, king. This is the king with the power of life and death, and she just said no. Well, he's embarrassed, so to save face, he talks to his advisors, and they figure out, well, she can't be the queen anymore. We can't let that stand. So he puts her away. She can't be queen anymore, and they help him figure out, no problem, king, there's plenty of other girls. We'll just go gather them up and let you, let you pick one. So they did that, and Esther was one of the ones that they brought in. Now, this was not a beauty pageant. This isn't like an innocent, sweet little thing. They were brought into his harem, and that's just the way it is. Only one was going to get to be a queen. So the question wasn't, I either get to be a queen or I go home. No, you're not going home. You either get to be a queen or you get to be lonely for the rest of your life in the palace. Those were the possibilities from that point. And she and all the other girls were brought in. And after, after spending a night with each, each young woman, the king would decide which one he wanted to be his queen. The whole process took over a year. And in that time, Esther was in the palace. She never told anyone that she was Jewish. Her uncle Mordecai was a known Jew. He'd been hanging around the palace trying to listen, stay tuned and what was going on because he loved Esther like a daughter. And he wanted to make sure that she was Okay. And one day while he was hanging around he heard some he heard some talk. He heard these guards talking. They were angry. They were mad at the king and they wanted to kill the king. They were plotting. So he told Esther, there's some guys that want to kill the king. Esther reported it. And after it was investigated, they found out, yeah, it's true. These guys are really plotting to kill the king. Um so they executed the men and they wrote it all down properly in a report. I didn't give you I didn't Full pictures, But there are literally thousands and thousands of tablets that they found in Persepolis for this kingdom that are administrative records like tribute records, tax records, all kinds of decisions. They have tons of records. Um, and that's what they did. They recorded, they recorded the logs. So they recorded this incident in front of the king and Mordecai reported it. We investigated. We found the guys guilty. We killed them. Kind of drops that in there and then moves on. So now Haman, the person that we talked about before, he was one of the king's officials. He did a good job. Apparently the king liked him. So he promoted him. And he gave him the highest position of all his other officials. And so he required that the other other parts of government, the other people, bow down to this guy. And all the officials did it. Except Mordecai. And the scripture does not explain why Mordecai refused to do it. It's interesting. We don't know exactly why, but honestly it sounds a bit like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They refused to bow to the king, or they refused to bow to the statue of the king, right? They refused to worship anyone but God. And we don't know if, if the implication here was sort of a kind of a worship or a too much honor, or if it was just the fact that Mordecai knew that this guy was an Amalekite and there was no way he was ever going to bow to an Amalekite. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what Mordecai's thought process was, but he would not bow (coughs) to Haman. Now, Haman was quite offended by this. And he decided he wanted to kill Mordecai. But then he thought, you know what? Let's go for broke. Why just stop with Mordecai? Let's kill all these Jews. We hate him anyway. Um, So that's what that's what uh, Haman decided to do. But he was a clever guy. He didn't get to be the top of the government by being a dummy. So he talked to the king. And this is what this is what chapter 3 verse 8 through 11 says. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there's one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's. They do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up, authorizing their destruction. And I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadath, the, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. So, King Ahasuerus bought it. Haman sold it, and the king bought it. He doesn't know what he bought, but he trusts his guy. So take care of it. You got the money, you got the authority, here's my ring, go take care of this problem. Now Esther heard about this. She told Mordecai by a messenger, remember, we were talking about this in Sunday school, they couldn't talk directly. Mordecai is a Jew, and he's a known Jew. Esther's a Jew, but she's a secret Jew. And she's also the queen now. So, They couldn't talk. So they passed messages back and forth. And the king didn't know that the Jews were the target anyway because Haman wasn't really very specific. So this is where the the focal passage comes in in the the study guide. That Mordecai reaches out to her and says, hey, you're going to have to take an action here. Esther knew the rule for approaching this king. The rule was that you came when you called. That was the rule. If you came without being called... He could either offer his scepter and welcome you and accept your interruption. If he didn't, you're dead. You would be executed and that would be that. And the rule applied to absolutely everybody, even the queen. And what makes it even more complicated is he hadn't called her. For a month he hadn't even called her to come to him. And and she didn't know why. But Mordecai told her to risk it. And this is his precious, precious niece that he's raised as a daughter. But he knows a critical time. And so he says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. And what was her response? Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me three days I'm skipping a few words, and I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if is it against, even if is it it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. And she did it. And five two says that as soon as the king saw her, she gained favor with him. Not only did he accept her into his presence, he said, "Ask me for anything, and I will give it to you. Up to half my kingdom." Wow. She went from being prepared literally to be condemned to death to being offered half the kingdom just by asking. Just like that. So she made a very modest request. Please come to dinner tomorrow and bring Haman your top advisor. We'll have dinner that I'll prepare. And folks, this is God at work in the background. It's absolutely God. He's quiet in these chapters, but He's working I've been reading Exodus, and I've lost count of how many times it said, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says it a lot. But here, quietly and without announcing it, he has softened this king's heart. And was Esther his favorite? Well, yeah, because he made her queen. Was she beautiful? Oh, yeah, she was. Did he have all the other women he wanted? Yeah. He didn't need Esther if he was in a bad mood. And had he even called her for a month? Nope. He hadn't. He'd ignored her for a month. So she didn't know where she stood. Right? But God moved him. Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And this king's heart was turned to Esther. To accept what she asks and give it to her. So God works his plan. God works his plan. But our part... Is to obey and to pray. And that's what we see with Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai saying, take action. Esther, go and do. And then Esther says, okay, now pray. Pray for me. So obey and pray. Those are the two things that Mordecai and Esther can teach us right now. God's going to work His plan, but we can have a part of it. Obeying and praying. Esther knew that she did not have control over the situation. Her power was completely limited by whatever the king's mood was, right? But Mordecai and Esther knew something else. Even the king didn't realize. The king's response was limited and governed by what God was going to do. And so Mordecai told her, if she stayed silent, deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. That's a very passive way of saying, you know what Esther, I trust God. He is going to take care of his people. He's made a promise and he doesn't break his promises. But he says... Deliverance will come from another place. He knew that many Jews might be killed. They had before. But God would preserve them as a people. And then Esther said, Fast for me. She said fast, but she meant fast and pray. She didn't say, Hey, could you get on Facebook and send me some positive thoughts? Could you shoot me some, some good vibes? No. Positive thoughts and good vibes are Nothing. She said, pray on your knees to the Almighty God of Israel so I don't get killed. That's what she's saying, right? That's what we can do. We have access to Him. Obey and pray. Now, God's flair for the dramatic. As I was studying and looking at all these things, I ran across this article. (laughs) I love this. It said, "This, this chapter could be called, Haman's No Good, Very Bad Day. Yeah, it's very bad for Haman, and I think I think Carly, I forgot to s- flip the thing. We have a picture of Esther. I, I collected a few pictures. Um, none of them are new. They're all like seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century, like you know, fine art museum type pieces. Um, so that one's a eighteen seventy eight picture of Esther. I like that one because she's uh, looking very intense and not super confident, um, like. Not sure exactly what's gonna happen. I kind of think that's before she goes to see uh. Oh, yours. Um so Haman's gallows Haman's gallows from Mordecai. So here's what we're happening next. At the banquet that she invited them to, Esther's gonna ask the king if he would come again with Haman a second night. So it's really quick. They just have dinner and she invites him to a second dinner. Because he asked her again, ask me anything. Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And that was her answer. How about dinner tomorrow night too? That was it. And the king said, well, how can I say no to that? We'll do it. So they leave that dinner and Haman is feeling good because he's just got promotion. He's he's put this plan in front of the king and the king said, yeah, here's my signet ring. You do what you need to do, Haman. We are good. And then... He got invited to dinner with the queen and the king. Haman is on top of the world. So he goes home and he talks to his people. and He said, remember that Mordecai? He wouldn't bow to me. Let's just take care of this now. I think I'll... And so he talks to his family. He actually builds a gallows to to hang Mordecai on. And he's figuring, you know what? Things are going so good for me. I'm just going to talk to the king tomorrow. We're going to get Mordecai taken care of tomorrow. Can't wait. So... This, this now is the Shakespeare part of this where the, the things just kind of weave in and out. And uh, Although this predates Shakespeare by about a thousand years. No, two thousand. Two thousand years. Yeah. So, love it. And God's the author, so it's actually perfect and true. Um, so, what happens then is the king can't sleep. So that night after the dinner, the king can't sleep. And he asks, what does he ask for so he can sleep? Now, you would think he might ask for one of the ladies from the harem, but that's not what he asks for. He says, you know what? Bring the guy that reads the records out of the record book. That, I know, will knock me right out. <laughs> right? So they bring, they bring the guy, and he reads the records. What does he happen to read? Oh, here's one from a couple years ago. Let me tell you about this one, King Osiris. Remember that little deal with the, the guards that wanted to kill you, but Mordecai reported it, and we, had, we went ahead and had him killed, so you're safe? And the and king said, yeah, I, I do remember that. Did, did we ever do anything to honor or reward that guy? And they said, actually, king, no, we didn't do anything. He said, wow, today's the day to do that. And just at that moment, just right then, After that conversation happened, but before the next part, Haman came into the outer court. He didn't hear it, but he came into the outer court. And then the page person announced to the king, Hey, Haman's here if you want to ask him in. So the king said, Hey, yeah, yeah. Haman's my, he's my number one. Come on in here, Haman. I need to talk to you about something. And what does he say to Haman? Haman, what do you think? Just your opinion, your plan, your idea What do you think we ought to do for someone that the king wants to honor? And Haman's like, yeah, oh yeah, it's got to be me. I just got invited to dinner with the queen last night. So Haman went all in. He went for broke. How about a game-worn jersey? No, not a game-worn jersey. How about a royal garment that the king has worn? Let's start with that king. And then how about a horse that the king has ridden on? Oh, and, and let's put a crown on the horse's head. That would be pretty cool. And then why don't you get one of the highest people in your government to lead the man around town on this horse, wearing the royal robe. And then the, the, this high official is going to call out to the public, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. So Haman is just, he's piling it on because he is ready to go do this. And the king says, that's a great idea. Haman, can you go make that happen? There's a guy named Mordecai, and he saved my life a few years ago. I need you to be the guy that goes and takes him around town and honors him. (sighs) I said there was humiliation. This is humiliation. Uh, Slide 14 shows a picture of an artist's idea of what this might have looked like. Uh, So, yeah, so Mordecai is being led around town on this horse... And Haman's the one that's got to announce in front of him. Haman hates his guts, can't stand him. But he knows better than to say no to the king. He gets home that night and talks to his family, and they all said, This is bad. Everything was going good. This is bad. You are going to fall. So Haman's scared now. But they go to the second banquet, and they're with the king. And then the king asks Esther, Ask me anything, up to a half my kingdom. This is the third time he's made this offer to her. And now it's time. And Esther says, Well, spare my life and spare my people. That's my request. King did not even understand what she was talking about. Because he doesn't understand what Haman has been up to. And he says, Who is this? Who would devise such a scheme? What are you talking about? And she says, this man. Slide 16. Says this this man. And she calls him out. This evil Haman is the enemy and the adversary. Now the king was furious. And he stormed out. He stormed out. So while, just as he left, Haman thought, I've got one shot here i got to somehow make it right with Esther. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Maybe I'll get on my knees. I don't know. He runs over to her couch to try to beg to her. And he falls down on the couch. Just as the raging king comes back in and sees, Oh, really? You're on my couch with my wife now? In my own house? And that's the next, the next slide. He says, cover his head and go hang him you can see they're, they're bringing the blanket to take him away. Would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? And then one of the, one of the helpful eunuchs for the king says, Oh, uh, there's a gallows 75 feet tall. It's at Haman's house. That He made it for Mordecai who gave the report that saved the king. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the state of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. How about that? Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Now, there's more to the story. This becomes a holiday for the Jews called Purim. And I don't have time to go into all that. But it's super interesting. It's called, it's called Purim because the, the poor is a, like a form of a lot, kind of like a die that you cast. And that's how uh, Haman picked the date that they were going to slaughter the Jews was by this lot. So that's why they call it that. Um, but as the, as the worship team comes back up, I want to just say a few things in conclusion. Um, There's so much here. What a rich story. But but what do we see? What can we take away from Esther? One, God is at work, whether He is named or not. He's in control whether you know it or not. We see that God is faithful in our times of exile, and we see that God calls us to be faithful in our times of exile. Right? We see that, that Esther... Neither Esther nor Mordecai knew how things would turn out. We don't know how things will turn out. We can't see the future any better than they could. God doesn't need us to control the whole situation. He's got that. He needs us to submit. He needs us to obey. He needs us to be ready to put things on the line for Him. And what does it take to do that? Faith and trust. That's what we have to have is faith and trust. Kevin brought up this morning in Sunday school, without faith it's impossible to please God. That's what he wants. And we know that Abraham was considered righteous because of his faith. Right? And then he asks us to pray. God has big plans. God has little plans. At this time, his big plan was Messiah. Right? That was the big plan. If you actually look in the genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament, uh It's broken. It says there's generations before the exile and after the exile. What if after the exile didn't happen? Well, that wasn't an option for God. After the exile was going to happen because He was going to rescue the Jews one way or another. He happened to use Esther to do it. So Esther doesn't show up in the genealogy of Jesus, but her rescue of the people of God helped to bring the Messiah forth. So God had a plan for them. He has a plan for us. Um, We don't know what His plan is always. We saw the picture of Susa. We saw the palace. We saw the tombs of Esther and, and, um, and Mordecai. They were real people in a real time, in a real place. Just like you. Just like me. We're real people in a real place, in a real time. Just like Esther and Mordecai. We've been placed where we are. Just like Esther. She was placed where she was. Mordecai was placed where she was. And each one of us is placed in a different place. We're all in the same room right now. But when we leave here, each of us has a different network and contact group of people that we interact with. And God has placed us in those little groups. How will we use that position? He asked Esther to use her position to make a case to the king. Please spare my people. What is he asking you to do? How, how will you spend your opportunities that you have? Esther's response was, if I perish, I perish. But I'm going to give it a go. What are you willing to risk? She was willing to risk her life. Are you willing to risk embarrassment? You might take that, you know. Are you willing to risk a sales lead? That could happen. Are you willing to risk a business contact that you've established? Are you willing to risk being hurt? Are you willing to risk being isolated or lonely? None of those things are as bad as being killed. Esther was willing to absolutely risk her life. God calls us to obey and trust Him. We don't like risk, but we have to love Him more than we we are afraid. There's a, a quote. You're not going to hear me quote this guy very often, but I think he has a point. It was Jim Morrison of The Doors. He said, nobody gets out of here alive. When Mordecai told Esther, hey, you're going to die one way or the other, the same applies to us. We, we can't save our lives by not acting. Okay? Jesus told us that you, you've got to spend your life. If you want to save it, you'll lose it. You've got to give it to get it. So we we need to spend it, we need to act, we need to do, we need to obey and we need to trust. I want you to think about the people in your life that you can act, that you can speak to. God used Esther and used the rest of Israel to bring forth Messiah to save us all. That's the message that we're tasked to bring. And that, that message has to come from willing people, willing to talk and willing to open up, willing to reach out. So I want to ask you, use your opportunities, spread this gospel, ask them to come on. Um, Sometimes it's as simple as come and see, that's fine too.